Risk Chats with a Firm. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today we're doing a special dual cast with uh, AGA and a firm, and we are talking about the coming update to the COSO ACFE Fraud Risk Management Guide, and we have Dave Cotton here to uh, kind of walk us through the original guide and what the updates are that are on their way. And we wanted to get this out to both podcasts as it's a, a nice topic for, for both AGA and Affirm. So let's start the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Okay, so today we have a special topic. We're talking about the COSO ACFE Fraud Risk Management Guide. There are some changes happening and we have a special guest today, Mr. Dave Cotton, to talk about that. So good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm good, Paul. How are you doing? Doing great. So why don't we just start off, maybe just give us a little intro to yourself, and then we'll get into the, the meat of the uh, podcast here, if you don't mind. Well, I work for a CPA firm, Cotton & Company. My current title is chairman. Um, we've been around for about 40 years, and our primary practice focus is uh, federal government uh, programs. We do audits. We do litigation support. We do fraud examinations. And... Uh, help uh, federal agencies prepare prepare financial statements so that's primarily what we do great well and you're uh, also very much involved in this guide and that's why we wanted to talk today so why don't we just kick it off here um just to remind folks what these acronyms are but so coso committee of sponsoring organizations of the Treble commission and the acfe is the association of certified fraud examiners so uh, there was a joint publication of this fraud risk management guide back in 2016. I know you were very heavily involved in that. Could you just give us a little background? What was the purpose of this guide? Why did you all feel that it was needed? Okay, the uh, original COSO Internal Control Integrated Framework was published in 1992. In 2013, um, COSO decided it needed to be updated. And when they updated it, they added 17 principles that align with the five uh, COSO internal control components. And principle eight was the one that uh, got a lot of attention. Principle eight says the organization considers the potential for fraud in assessing risks to the achievement of, of objectives. So the purpose of the guide was to provide uh, guidance on how to adhere to achieve and comply with that particular principle. What's interesting is that uh, uh, apparently, many COSO internal control framework users had not previously considered fraud when they were designing their internal controls. Yeah, that's uh, that's surprising. So, and then tell us a little bit more about, you know, so then you jumped in here. What was your specific role in getting this, this guide up and running? Well, uh, my involvement started in 2014. I was at a uh, PCAOB meeting in the fall of 2014, and uh, after the meeting, I got to chatting with uh, a fellow by the name of Bob Hurth, and Bob at that time was uh, the chair of COSO. I had uh, been following the uh, issuance of the updated internal control framework. I complimented him on that, uh, on that product, and I asked him how it was being received. He said it was uh, getting a lot of attention, but uh, COSO was getting a lot of questions about this uh, fraud risk assessment requirement that uh, had been added. 
And uh, I had been on an earlier AICPA, IIA, ACFE task force that had published back in 2007 a document called Managing the Business Risk of Fraud, a Practical Guide. And that document had uh, material in there about uh, how to perform a fraud risk assessment. So I, I suggested to Bob, I said, just refer people uh, to that 2007 product. But I said, you know, that's been a while now. It probably needs an update. And he said, uh, well, that's terrific. How soon can you get started updating it? So uh, that's how I inherited the role of uh, heading up the task force. I contacted the ACFE, asked them if they'd be interested in sponsoring the project along with COSO, and uh, they were glad to do that. So I reached out to about 30 experts from business, government, academia, and uh, we formed a task force, divided up the effort. We started with that earlier product, uh, Managing the Business Risk of Fraud, a Practical Guide. And uh, we, we went from there. Because we had uh, pretty good uh, and dedicated people involved, we were able to complete the project in about 10 months. And then we turned it over to the uh, editors and graphics people at the American Institute of CPAs and uh, they took another 10 months or so to finalize the product, and it was issued in September of 2016. So, and I, I will put a link on the uh, podcast website. You can you can download an executive summary. I'm looking at it right now. It looks pretty good. And uh, do you mind just walking us through how is this guide structured? You know, how is it meant to be used? Well, uh, we wanted the guide to look and feel like a COSO product. We wanted it to be compatible with the COSO internal control framework. So the guide has five broad risk management principles, and those align with the five components of internal control, control environment, risk assessment, control activities, information and communication, and monitoring activities. So there's five chapters, one for each of those broad risk management principles. And... Uh, because the revised COSO internal control framework uh, added points of focus, key elements, that key attributes that were needed under each principle, we added points of focus under each of our fraud risk uh, management uh, uh, principles. And so the guide has five chapters and uh, actually 19 appendices, uh, additional material to, to support the implementation of the, those five principles. So, and again, so the primary use of this guy for folks here is to, uh, you know, understand and assess your, your fraud risk, right? So I'm just looking at the chapters here, and it looks like the second chapter is fraud risk assessment. I'm, I'm guessing that's the most important one? Well, uh, yeah, it turned out to be. That's uh, what people turned to first when they were struggling with uh, adhering to principle eight about performing a fraud risk assessment. And that that chapter guides the the organization through the process of assessing fraud risk, documenting the assessment, and so forth. So most users, uh, at least initially, primarily focused on the risk assessment chapter, along with the, the third chapter, which uh, uh, talks about uh, how to apply control activities to help prevent and, and detect fraud. But uh, COSO and ACFE obviously recommend that 
organizations implement all five principles in order to effectively manage fraud risk. So uh, chapter one deals with the control environment, establishing a, a, uh, a set of directives in the organization that uh, lay out the organization's commitment to effective fraud risk management. Two is the risk assessment. Three is uh, how, to, how to design and apply control activities. Chapter four is uh, information and communication. So in that chapter, we addressed uh, the importance of fraud hotlines, establishing a, a mechanism so that uh, organization stakeholders can report uh, suspicions of, uh, of fraud. Uh, that chapter also uh, covers uh, how to perform a fraud investigation in the organization. Then the fifth chapter talks about how to monitor that whole process, how to make sure on a going forward basis that uh, the the process is is in fact uh, being carried out in the organization. So in order to uh, have a, a holistic approach to managing fraud risk, uh, an organization really should focus on all five of of the of the fraud risk management principles. And I, I think it'd be helpful for the audience, you know, can you just give us kind of uh, highlights or the nitty gritties, or I guess that's the opposite, but the highlights of how, you know, how should an organization conduct a fraud risk assessment just for the lay person? What are the basic steps? What are the, what's the most critical piece to uh, how to conduct an actual risk assessment for fraud? Yeah, that's, that's a, a good question. And the first thing that you need to do is assemble a team or teams of people in the organization who are knowledgeable about all aspects of the organization. So you want somebody that's uh, uh, fulfilling management roles. You want somebody from operations. You want somebody from manufacturing, production, sales, marketing. Uh, you need coverage of, of all aspects of the organization and how it operates. So a small organization might have just uh, one team. Uh, larger organizations with uh, with uh, many, many employees, maybe different lines of business, maybe a geographic uh, dispersion, they might have to assemble uh, multiple teams. So you assemble these these folks into uh, brainstorming teams. And uh, the, the, the key to the risk assessment is that it's the process is fraud scheme specific. So the, the teams get together and uh, they brainstorm to identify every potential fraud scheme to which the organization might be vulnerable. So you can imagine a group of people sitting in a conference room and somebody tosses out an idea of a particular type of fraud and that makes somebody else think of some uh, different type of fraud or some uh, different nuance to that type of fraud. And somebody's uh, just making a comprehensive list of all the fraud schemes to which the, uh, the team thinks that the organization uh, might be vulnerable. So to do that, uh, and it's 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 kind of similar to the process that we use as uh, as as auditors when we go in and uh, audit an organization's financial statements. We get our team together and we talk about how fraud might happen in that organization. But in this fraud risk assessment, as part of the fraud risk management guide, it's a little bit more comprehensive process. So. Uh, that that type of brainstorming is it takes a lot of energy. So uh, typically, the the process of identifying all the fraud schemes could take uh, several sessions. You might meet uh, once or twice a week over a, a, a five or 
five or six week period. But eventually you'll conclude that you have a comprehensive list of, of all the fraud schemes that could happen. And uh, there's an appendix to the guide that, that lists uh, typical fraud schemes that could impact an organization. So you can refer to that if, once you think you've exhausted your brainstorming to make sure you've covered everything. So once you've, you've identified all the potential fraud risks, then you shift into uh, the mode where you go back to the top of your list and you evaluate each of the fraud schemes in turn. And the first thing you do is uh, look at a particular fraud scheme and, and assess likelihood. What are the chances that uh, that particular fraud scheme could happen in this organization? And significance, if it happens, how much damage will it cause? So assessing likelihood and significance, you can, you can visualize it on a, on a graph. Uh, and in the upper right quadrant, high likelihood, high significance, those are your most important fraud risks and you can prioritize your, your work from there. Uh, the next step looking at a particular fraud scheme is to identify, uh, any existing controls that would help to, uh, mitigate the fraud risk and assess the effectiveness of those controls. So typically an organization will have a, a whole array of internal controls in place and uh, many of those could help to uh, protect against fraud. So you assess uh, what existing controls there are, how, how effective are they with a particular focus on preventing or detecting fraud. And typically, after you've done that, you'll conclude that there's some uh, remaining fraud risk. We call it residual fraud risk after we've considered the effectiveness of internal controls. And then the final step in the process is to try to mitigate that residual fraud risk. And that's done by revising existing controls, perhaps, or adding additional controls, perhaps, and uh, the the biggest area to look at in terms of, uh, of adding additional controls is probably uh, data analytic controls. You you uh, come up with data analytic tests that you can perform to uh, either prevent a fraud from happening or detect it if it does happen. So the process is is sort of a uh, an iterative process. Identify all the fraud schemes, assess likelihood and significance of each one evaluate the effectiveness of existing controls, and then uh, add additional controls or revise existing controls to uh, provide better protection uh, against uh, against that particular fraud scheme. Great. No, that's good. So that's the process. That's and it. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm sorry. No, I was just saying that I love how that's laid out nice and, you know, step by step, and I'm assuming that's where the guide helps us. And I wanted to ask you, so, you know, you, you did mention internal controls a couple of times there. And, you know, most agencies at this point have a pretty decent A123 or internal review, internal control review team, even enterprise risk management out there. You know, is this something separate from that? Or if you already have a good internal control program, do you just pull that into this fraud uh, fraud uh, assessment? What, what do you think? Well, if you've, uh, if you've effectively implemented A123, and uh, the, the GAO Green Book, uh, you probably should have focused on fraud. But the fact of the matter is, many organizations uh, operate on the belief that fraud can't really happen to them. So when they design their internal controls, 
uh, it's likely that their primary focus was on accuracy and accounting and financial reporting rather than potential fraud. So um, the, the, the internal controls and fraud risk management are certainly compatible. But uh, what the Fraud Risk Management Guide does is have you take another look at your existing controls from the perspective of, uh, of fraud. So uh, a control that's effective for accuracy in accounting or financial reporting may not be particularly effective for preventing or detecting fraud. Let's take a, a, a couple of examples. Let's, let's look at some, some uh, sort of go-to internal controls that most organizations put in place. Segregation of duties is, is a good one. We, we uh, separate the uh, uh, transaction steps and, and, and uh, spread those across multiple individuals so that no single individual can control all aspects of the transaction. That's a, that's a pretty standard in, internal control that I think every organization has. So when we look at uh, that control from the fraud lens, one of the logical conclusions to reach is that control segregation of duties is very effective as long as the people uh, involved in that process don't get together and collude. So we've had cases in the past where uh, as a matter of convenience, uh, somebody gave up their password so that uh, another person could, uh, could uh, uh, affect the transaction. So, from that fraud risk perspective, we, we need to be concerned about collusion of the people who's, uh, who are carrying out the segregated duties. And so we can see that if they get together and collude, that represents residual fraud risk. And uh, an additional control we might want to put in place would be, say, a policy where we, we rotate the duties, uh, bring in new people uh, to, to perform those segregated duties on a maybe a monthly or a quarterly or semi-annual basis. The goal here is to rotate the duties before the people involved have a chance to get together and collude. Another another good example is uh, approved vendor lists. Uh, again, most organizations have a policy that uh, they'll only do business with vendors that have been fully vetted. And so the organization maintains a, a database of approved vendors. And that's a that's a pretty effective control. It, uh, it, it, but when we look at it from a fraud perspective, we might say, well, you know, what if somebody could access our approved vendor database and add, say, a bogus vendor, uh, add a, a fictitious company or a company that would direct the money to the person that accessed the uh, vendor database? So that would represent residual fraud risk. And what we might do there is add a data analytic. And uh, we would uh, say on a monthly basis, just compare, use a data analytic test to compare all the fields in the employee database with all the fields in the vendor database. And we might find some name similarities, but we might also find some uh, telephone number matches, we might find some address matches, we might find some uh, bank routing information matches that would indicate that it's possible that somebody, some one of our employees gained access to our proof vendor database, set up a phony vendor, and we'd, we'd uh, evaluate it further from, from that point. That's a good example of a, what I call a covert data analytic. You certainly don't want your employees to know that you're performing that 
vendor database, employee database comparison because that would uh, nullify its effectiveness. So that's a that's a data analytic control that can work quietly in the background and alert you if uh, if uh, if it appears that an employee might have added uh, a a vendor that they shouldn't have added. Uh, a, a final example is uh, most organizations have policies in place that say uh, any transaction above a particular dollar amount needs uh, regional office approval or or home <clears throat> home office approval, and that's a that's a pretty good uh, control mechanism to assure that uh, uh, transactions being being uh, uh, implemented are are appropriate and proper. So from a fraud perspective, evaluating the effectiveness of that control, we would conclude that it has limited effectiveness if people can split purchases, split transactions, so that uh, they occur just below that higher higher uh, approval uh, requirement kicks in. And uh, that's actually done fairly frequently, both in the private sector and, and in government. Sometimes it's it's a relatively innocent. We just don't want to uh, take the time to get uh, regional office or home office approval, but it could be done because uh, we want to avoid regional office or home office scrutiny. So a good data analytic we might consider adding there would be uh, a Benford's Law analysis. Uh, Benford's Law is a, is a digital uh, analysis technique and uh, it predicts the occurrence of lead digits in a database of naturally occurring transactions. And so that would, if they are, our threshold is 500,000. Um, if we saw a spike where the lead digit was a four or the first two digits were a four nine, that would be a pretty good indication that somebody's doing purchase splitting. So you can see that if you focus specifically on fraud, when you look at your existing internal controls, you can see that uh, often those controls can be circumvented or overridden, and we then put in place uh, additional uh, control activities to help uh, prevent or detect those types of frauds if they happen. Right. So it sounds like it, you know, regular internal controls for accounting and accuracy, you know, those kind of things, sounds like they're they're probably put in place assuming good actors or people just might make a mistake or unintentional. But I think the fraud level, we're talking more thinking about the criminal, the bad actor, you know, like a cyber, like a hacker, you know, so you kind of have to go to that next level and design some controls that would catch some of these uh, trickier schemes. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly the point. And the key is that you're you're looking specifically through a lens of potential fraud and it helps you see uh, how effective or ineffective your controls uh, might actually be. Right. No, I like that. That's great. Um, so a few more questions about the guide itself. So, you know, is, is this current, uh, the guide mandated by any actual accounting or audit standards? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And it, it actually, uh, we have to look at it from two different perspectives, private sector and governmental sector. In the private sector, neither the COSO internal control framework nor the fraud risk management guide are actually mandated. Both are considered best practices. Accounting principles and auditing standards simply require that organizations have systems of internal control in place 
and auditing standards actually point to the COSO internal control framework for guidance, but the fact of the matter is that an organization could theoretically adopt some different uh, internal control uh, process, procedures, framework. fact of the matter is that most organizations have it adopted and embraced uh, the COSO internal control framework. In fact, all publicly traded companies uh, follow uh, the COSO internal control framework. Uh, what's different, though, is in the federal government, uh, we have the GAO Green Book, which is Standards for Internal Control in the federal government, and it's the federal equivalent of the COSO internal control framework. In fact, the two are, are well aligned. They both have uh, 17 principles. The Green Book is mandated by federal law and regulation. All federal agencies are required to adhere to the Green Book. Similarly, the Government Accountability Office uh, issued a framework for managing fraud risks in federal programs. It was published at about the same time as the Fraud Risk Management Guide. Its principal author, uh, Linda Miller, was a member of our Fraud Risk Management Guide Task Force. And that GAO framework is, in con is consistent with and it actually parallels the Fraud Risk Management Guide quite closely. So that GAO framework has been written in the federal law and regulation. So in that respect, the federal government is ahead of the private sector in terms of mandating both an internal control framework and mandating fraud risk management. But the key point is that the Green Book was written in consultation with the people who wrote the COSO internal control framework and the GAO fraud risk management framework was uh, was published in in concert with the task force that wrote the fraud risk management guide so they're very very well aligned very good um now another question uh, you know how do how can you use this guide or how does it relate to when an agency has an external audit well uh, that's a good question external auditors uh, are required to assess fraud risk and uh, if an organization has fully implemented the Fraud Risk Management Guide, it makes the external auditor's job a lot, a lot easier. Consider two scenarios. Let's say you're the, you're the external auditor and you're, you come to the exit conference and you, you ask management, what are you doing to manage fraud risk? And if management says, well, we're not doing anything because fraud can't happen to us, that tells you as, as the auditor that you're going to have a lot of work to do in terms of uh, assessing fraud risk. On the other hand, if at the entrance conference, the auditors ask management, what are you doing to manage fraud risk? And management ho holds up their dog-eared and worn fraud risk management guide, and they say, we fully implemented the fraud risk management guide, and you're welcome to review what we've done. Uh, you, the auditor, are going to reach an entirely different conclusion about your uh, potential audit risk. Uh, because you know you'll be able to rely on the work that was already done by management. And in theory, you should be able to reduce the, the, the cost of performing the audit because you'll have less work to do in terms of assessing fraud risk. Yep, that's a good uh, tip to those agencies out there. Um, so now going along with that, though, this is a pretty long guide. You know, it's over 100 pages. You know, is it feasible really for agencies to cover everything in the guide? Or, you know, what do you say to that? Well, uh, it's 130 pages. 
five chapters and a whole bunch of appendices. The uh, GAO companion document, the GAO framework on fraud risk management, is is about uh, 60 pages. Uh, but the point is, you have to uh, to do it right. It has to be a comprehensive effort. No doubt about it. It's going to consume some resources. But according to the ACFE, the average typical org organization loses about 5% of its revenues due to fraud each year. Add to that the fact that we all know that many frauds can be catastrophic to an organization. Uh, WorldCom, Enron, Tyco, to name a few. So a well-managed and well-led organization is going to recognize that the, the cost-benefit analysis is really a, a no-brainer. There's a big payoff to effectively uh, preventing and, and detecting fraud and managing fraud risk. It, if you're the leader of an organization, you're going to sleep better at night, I think, knowing that uh, strong fraud risk management control activities are in place and, and functioning. Yeah, and from what you're saying, I mean, it sounds like you can incorporate this into an existing, uh, you know, programs at your agency, your ERM program, your internal control program. I mean, it might be a separate piece, but you could use the results to feed those as well, make your internal controls more robust. Um, so, I mean, to me, it seems like something that is worth the while and you'll kind of get more bang for your buck if you combine with other existing programs. I mean, does that make sense or is that a way to go about it? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. They have to they have to be compatible, build on each other. But also keep in mind that uh, most of the additional control activities that you're going to want to implement to manage fraud risk are data analytics. And uh, data analytic tests, uh, once they've been designed, are very, very uh, easy to perform. The computer does it. You can a actually program your data analytics to work in the background and simply alert someone if, uh, if uh, a transaction fails a, a data analytic test. So... Uh, the, the data analytics make managing fraud risk much, much easier. Right. So that's yeah, that's basically that concept of continuous monitoring and just another input and to help prevent detect. So, no, absolutely. Um, so just two more questions for you. I want to talk a little bit more about some specific tools in the current guide, but then I want you to tell us about this uh, refresh that's happening. So maybe just a little bit about some of those additional tools that we can find in the appendix. Yeah, appendix appendix J contains uh, links to additional tools. We we had we designed some tools to help in this process, and we knew that those were going to be uh, improved and evolved. So uh, those tools actually reside at the ACFE website, and uh, you can access those at at no charge. Uh, best way to find those tools is to simply do a search on ACFE fraud risk management tools, and it'll take you to that that page. Tools include, uh, there are five interactive fraud risk management scorecards for assessing how well you've implemented the five fraud risk management principles. So uh, it's a it's an interactive tool. So you assess based on the attributes under each principle, and it'll give you a report on where you need to strengthen your uh, adherence to that principle. Uh, there's a spreadsheet that's a risk assessment and follow-up action document. It's a, it's a simple spreadsheet that you can use to actually document your fraud risk management uh, or your fraud risk assessment. As you fill in this spreadsheet, it'll create a heat map for you showing you where your highest risks are. It'll uh, 
prioritize risk rank your your fraud fraud risk, and uh, it's a place to document uh, how you're addressing uh, the residual fraud risk. The another tool that that's there is pretty valuable. It's a library of data analytic tests. So if you're interested in a particular fraud scheme, say embezzlement, uh, you you click on a link and it'll take you to an array of uh, data analytics to to consider. If you're if you're focused on procurement fraud, uh, it'll take you to a, a, a long list of uh, data analytic tests that you can c consider that would detect or prevent that type of fraud. There's another spreadsheet. It's called Points of Focus Documentation Template, and it's uh, you can use that to document how you're addressing each of the points of focus. Uh, we're, we're continually improving and adding to those tools. What we're going to uh, issue probably in the next few months is a, a more comprehensive list of potential fraud schemes. And uh, each uh, identified fraud scheme will be hy hyperlinked to underlying descriptions of, of, of uh, that type of fraud, how it happens, and uh, how, it, how it could come about. So those tools are intended to be crowdsourced. As, as people use those tools, they give us feedback on how they can be made better. And uh, it's a pretty valuable resource that the ACFE provides uh, for people to use at, at no charge. Some of the things on the ACFE website, you have to be a, a member and log in to access, but ACFE made these things available to uh, anybody who wants to access them. Okay. In terms of the uh, update to the guide, uh, in April, the current COSO chair, a fellow by the name of Paul Sobel, he reached out to the ACFB and said, you know, this thing's been out there for five years. Uh, maybe it's time we took another look at it and updated it. And so uh, uh, we we put together a little work plan for what we were going to do to update it, and uh, COSO and ACFE approved that, and we assembled a, a subset of the original task force. Uh, we, we didn't think we needed all 30 people, so we've got about uh, seven or eight people that are working on this, and we're primarily focusing on uh, updating and adding more information about data analytics. I think data analytics is really the future for both the audit profession as well as fraud risk management. So we're adding a section under each of the five principles to describe how you can apply uh, data analytics to meet that principle. Uh, the, the revised guide is going to do a better explanation of how fraud prevention and fraud detection support fraud deterrence. Uh, COSO has uh, three elements to their mission, internal control, uh, enterprise risk management, and fraud deterrence. So we wanted to make sure that uh, the guide makes clear the connection to fraud deterrence. A little bit more information about how internal control and fraud risk management are related. So we're going to include some of the examples. We talked about how uh, when you look at a particular internal control from a fraud risk perspective, you might view the effectiveness of that control a little bit differently. Uh, we're going to, there have been some developments uh, recently in the legal and re regulatory arena related to managing fraud risk. So we're adding information about that. And of course, uh, we're going to talk about the need to constantly uh, reassess fraud risk in light of emerging fraud risks. Uh, cyber fraud is a relatively uh, recent and growing development. 
cryptocurrency fraud, ransomware, and of course the whole COVID CARES Act uh, payroll protection program. Uh, that that didn't exist when the guide was written. So we're going to emphasize that you need to be vigilant for uh, emerging fraud risks. Part of the fraud risk assessment chapter talks about the fact that once you've done your fraud risk assessment, you have to update it periodically. Anytime there's a change in your operating environment, anytime there's an organizational change, and of course, anytime uh, new fraud opportunities emerge like COVID, CARES Act, PPP. Um, we're going to also the importance of having an effective fraud hotline. Uh, Web-based hotlines are very uh, easy to operate and expensive to operate, and uh, the the largest source of identified frauds comes from uh, tips from uh, people in your organization, anonymous tips. So you want to have an effective uh, fraud risk hotline. And then finally, we're we're reaching out to fraud risk management guide users and asking how it can be improved. Uh, so we're we're contacting typical organizations, all the five COSO members, and, and seeking input on how to how to improve the document. And uh, if anybody linked to this uh, uh, today has some ideas or suggestions for how to improve the fraud risk management guide, send an email to frmg at ac com. Frmg at acfe com. We're accumulating all the comments there. And our little task force will uh, evaluate those and uh, and uh, probably make uh, considerable use of those in terms of updating and improving the guide. Yeah, and we'll uh, we'll post that uh, email link also on the website so everybody can find it. And uh, just last question: What is the timeline you're looking to finalize the guide? I'm making pretty good progress. We're we're near completion on the on the things that we've already identified in terms of uh, updates to data analytics and so forth. Uh, the the variable that is built with others, depending on the, the volume of comments we get, uh, we'll have to massage those and, and decide how to deal with those. Uh, we've told COSO and ACFE that that we expect to have uh, an updated guide ready to be issued in uh, the first calendar quarter of 2022. Okay. Well, Dave, I mean, this has been great. I mean, I think this is a lot of great information. I hope uh, our listeners will take a read on some of the links we send, provide you guys some feedback and uh, yeah. Any last words you want to put out there or encourage folks to, uh, to support this? Uh, it's, it's worth looking at. It's a valuable document. And uh, I guess my final recommendation is uh, live long, prevent fraud, and prosper. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining our podcast today. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. Affirm.org is where you go. All the podcasts are there. Summit is coming up. Remember to sign up. And of course, more podcasts are always underway, so we'll get some to you soon here. But until that time, this is your host, Paul Marshall, signing off for Risk Chats with a Firm. <laughs>